you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up. First uh, John chapter 3. Yeah, that's right. We say goodbye to chapter 2 last week. Uh, and so we are, we are six weeks uh, and about halfway through our journey uh, through the letter of 1 John. And if you haven't been traveling with us, let me kind of try to catch you up. We've been exploring uh, a lot of great things so far. In fact, uh, John encourages us towards ultimately three things. So when you look at the, first, the letter of 1 John, there's three things that, that John is ultimately telling us to do. He says uh, that you need to know Jesus you need to obey God, and you need to love others. Uh, those are the three things. O- know Jesus, obey God, uh, and love others. And this letter is unpacking why and how we put those three things into practice. And, and so he separates this letter, though, into two sections. Okay? Uh, the first two chapters are spent in this word picture. And, and he, what he does is he says, okay, when you, when you think of God... You think of God as light. He says, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness whatsoever. And, and this truth forces us to respond to the ways we live our lives. We either, uh, John will, I, I love how he, he eliminates options. He says, you either live in the light or you live in the darkness. Uh, those, one of those two things are at play. And he says, there's really no way to stand in a gray area. Uh, and typically, if you're trying to stand in a gray area, that's a pretty good indication you're living in darkness. And, and he says the reasons why that is is because holiness and sinfulness are not friendly with one another. Uh, in fact, they wage war against each other. And fortunately for us, uh, we're not left wondering uh, how to find this light that we need to be walking in. Uh, John gives us great help in that. And in fact... Uh, after all, we, we can't muster light when we're trapped in darkness. And this is why John makes much of Jesus by telling us how uh, he is our advocate. And he is, uh, one of my favorite words to say out loud is propitiation. All right? Uh, so propitiation. I'm telling you, just, you just sound smarter. Uh, you don't even have to know what it means because nobody else does. Uh, and, but but that, that not only... Uh, does Jesus restore the relationship that sin broke with the Father as our advocate? Not only does He go before us, uh, but then He also satisfies the payment that our sin was exacting. Uh, that's what we mean by propitiation. He makes the payment for us. And now, uh, as a result of who Jesus is and what Jesus does, we react to the gospel in specific ways. That's, that's really the method of the Bible. Um, that as you experience the gospel, you, it changes the way that you live your life. You know, we long to live in the light because it's the best place. It is the place we best experience freedom and find joy and experience peace. And, and so this affects how we walk with God, how we walk in relationships, how we avoid walking in worldliness. And, and like we said last week, how we walk in awareness uh, when, when there are false gospels being preached to us, it affects how we recognize them and then avoid them. And, and so building on that foundation uh, that, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness, uh, John's going to bring in a new word picture uh, over these next couple of weeks. In fact, he's going to come in uh, and he's going to shift into a new thought. And now here's what you need to know. It's not a contrary thought. Uh, in fact, 
Uh, it's a new one that asks us to meditate, to look on the love that God has lavished us with and then uh, ask us to, to properly respond to that kind of love. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm excited because in, over these next few weeks, some of my favorite verses in all of the Bible are found in, in this letter as, God descri- as, as John describes God as love and then how we respond to all these different situations in our lives uh, in love. And so, in fact, these verses, they lead me uh, to worship. And so I, I, that's why I cherish them so much. Uh, and so let's pray and let's go in. Father, we come to you. And we thank you for those words we had the privilege of singing. And we pray over these next few moments that we would be very uh, aware of your Spirit. That as we talk about your love and then as we talk about our struggle at times with sin, that you would help us understand you and see you more clearly as a perfect Heavenly Father. We pray this morning we will be able to make much of Jesus We pray this morning we'd be able to make much of your spirit. We pray this morning that we would be able to honor you with this time. So we give it to you. And we ask that you do some incredible things. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Alright, so so the first three verses here are going to lead us into the next seven. Okay? And you're like, well, that's typically the way the Bible works. Um, but, But what they do is they set the stage for the area that John wants to address, but, but what he's doing is he's first revealing our motivation for standing firm. Because what he's going to tell us to do is to stand firm. And instead of coming in and saying, don't do this, right? If you ever grew up in a church that uh, you believe that God was all about rules and regulations and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this, uh, then, then what John does is he steps in and he says, as you consider this first incredible truth, I want you to allow the effect of that uh, to, to affect how you walk in, the, in these other things that we're going to address in these first ten verses. In fact, uh, the topic that John's going to bring to light is how we fight temptation, uh, how we avoid walking in sin. And to do this, we're going to frame it by exploring really three reasons why the believer uh, should, should pursue a holy life. Uh, in fact, if you talk notes, that should be What's at the very top, right, Heather? Is that, is that right? Three reasons, right? Okay, um, maybe not. You, you, who knows? All right, so we'll do this. Uh, you said yes. I'm sorry. I thought you were, I didn't know what you were doing. I didn't get the hand signal. We need to work on that. All right, here we go. I don't have time to have this conversation with you. We need to talk about this stuff. All right, so I think we just lost some TVs there, Chris. There we go. We're back. I got the thumbs up from the other hard. Mark, let's have a conversation. I've had two of the three. Uh, go get Finley. We'll have the fourth. Um, so, all right. So, so here's here's where we are. Three reasons why uh, gospel-centered believers pursue a holy life. And John comes in, and the first thing he tells us is that we are loved by the by God the Father. He says we are loved by God the Father. Okay, this is an incredible truth. And he starts off in chapter three, verse one, and he says this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. 
Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but what we know, uh, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because He shall, we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Okay, there's a lot. In fact, I, I strongly considered only making it three verses this week, uh, because there is so much packed into these three that it, it can be so easily read through and over uh, as we get to some other verses, and we will lose the beauty of what we're reading. And so, but packed into these verses, we get to see what we are, what we shall be, what we should be. And, but before we get to that, John sets the rest of this letter up with 11 worship-filled, praise-worthy words. In fact, he comes in and he says, See. Okay? See. So, so we, look, we look with our eyes and we feel with our hearts. He says, See what kind of love. Okay? So, so an experience that we are drawn toward even though we can't fully explain it. Uh, we see what kind of love. It's, it, the, the word there that's being used is agape. Okay? It's not like the love that we share for one another. This is a, a God-created, sacrificial, uh, God-modeled kind of love. So he says, come in, and I want you to see what kind of love. Then he says, the Father. He says, the Father. We are, we are called to consider and respond to a love from the one who created love. Who sets the standard of love. Who, who knows us. So he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. To us. So not, not only has, has God the Father created love that is pure, and not only has He declared His love in all of creation, but He has given His love to us. We could stop right there. We could chew on those words for the rest of the week. We could chew on those words for the rest of the year. Let us look. Let us see the kind of love that the Father has given to us. And so as we consider this, as we talk about this kind of love that's been given to us by the Father, we're granted the privilege of a title. Okay, so here's what we're going to see. Three things. First thing, we're going to see what we are. And in Christ... We are children of God. We are children of God. We are the children of a perfect and a holy heavenly Father. We are loved perfectly by Him. We are loved perfectly by Him in the ways that we, would, we want to love our children but fail so often. Right? Every good parent has a desire to love their children in perfect ways, but even in our best of efforts, we fall short of that. Is, am I the only one? No? Okay, yeah. Boy, your face is like, yeah, easy, bro. Approaching dangerous ground. Um, so, so think about this deeply if indeed you were found in Christ. God has adopted you into His family. He has made you full heirs to His glorious inheritance. His, his love for you doesn't change. It doesn't. In Jesus, you are secured by the promise of His Word, not your ability. Praiseworthy. 
praiseworthy. You are called His kid. And He loves you so much that He is building something great with your life as He gives us direction of what our lives shall be. And that leads us to what we shall be. And the answer is like Jesus. It says we shall be like Jesus. We, we won't be Jesus, but we shall be like Jesus. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. That's where we get this from. We shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And so as we grow up in Christ, we begin to look more like Jesus. This is the aim of, of, of a, a term we use around here called sanctification. Right? And all it means is as you grow up in Christ, you become more like Jesus. In fact, uh, that, that with each passing day, as we encounter the gospel, we will look more and more like Jesus to the world than we did before. Uh, in fact, Paul, uh, there, there's a, I can't remember where it was at. Uh, you would think I would know this, but I don't. Um, Paul uses this, this word picture. He says that you carry the fragrance of Christ to the rest of the world. Uh, so that so that you walk with Jesus so closely, you follow behind His footsteps so much that when the world smells you, they smell Him. And this is what John is telling us that 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 since we are children, uh, since we are the children of God, and we will be like Jesus, then He talks about what we should be, specifically what we should be doing, and that would be that we would be a people pursuing purity. We'll be a people pursuing purity. And this is where he says it in verse number 3, And everyone who thus hopes in Him, in Jesus, purifies himself as Jesus is pure. So this is, this is where we go this morning. The rest of this passage this morning is going to surround pursuing purity, what that looks like, more specifically, uh, not practicing sinfulness. Uh, this is where John's going to lead us. And before we head there, let's realize as we talk about this that, that salvation from start to finish is this expression of God's love. It's always this expression of God's love. We are saved by the grace of God, but the provision for our salvation originated in the love that God has for us, that we constantly are responding to. And since we have experienced the love of the Father, our desire is to pursue a pure and a holy life. This is, this is all John's been laying the groundwork for, right? That you would pursue walking in the light. Not, not out of obligation, uh, but from a desire to honor your dad for being so incredible. That you would understand the value of your family name and you would live in a manner that brings honor to it. So, so as we walk deeper in these verses, we, we pursue a holy life because God has loved us sacrificially. Uh, and now the question is, how does He do that, right? Number two in your talk notes, uh, we are rescued. This is why we pursue a holy life, because we are rescued by God the Son. We are rescued by God the Son. And so he continues on in verse number four. Everyone, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And you say, well, what is lawlessness? And he says, sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So, so let's admit for a moment uh, that, that what John is about to walk right into is an area in our hearts that we want to avoid. Fair enough? That, that we don't really want to talk about temptations and we don't really want to talk about sins. We, what we would rather do 
is talk about God's love. And we'd rather talk about God's forgiveness if we're going to talk about God at all. And, and this is partly why we teach this way at Merge, uh, because we can't hide from verses like this this morning. We can't ignore. We can't just say, ah, that didn't exist, because it does very clearly. And our desire is, is to grow healthy, and so these words, they can be helpful to us, even though we might walk out of here with our toes stepped on. All right? So, so, so let's understand first the degree uh, of sinfulness we're discussing here. Okay? Because when I was a teenager and I would hear talk, people talk about sin, I just assumed I was never going to be saved. Uh, I, was just gonna, I just assumed that even after I was saved, that there's no way God would revoke it. Okay? So what we're talking about here, this level of, of the, this degree of sinfulness, is, is a person who makes a practice of sinning. That, that this is an unrepentant person who wishes to have a foot in two different worlds, living in sin while believing they can maintain an intimate relationship with God. Now, let me tell you how that really plays out. It begins with this list of what you believe are really bad sins and not as big of a deal sins. Right? So you're like, oh, at least I'm not murdering people. You know, God's got to be happy with me that I'm not doing that. But then we say, this sin down here, it's not that big of a deal. I can continue on. And you can go through the Bible. We're not going to list them. We can find it. If you want to talk about them, go ahead and shout them out. What are yours? Um, no? Too soon? The Bible will address things like, like gossip, like lying. You realize there's no degree of lying. Little white lies are just as bad as big, big bold lies. There's acceptable sins that we found in the church that we say, that's ah, not that big of a deal. It's just a little bit of pride. It's just a little bit of strife. And so what John is describing is a person who says, I'm going to make a practice of that. I'm not going to address it. When I feel the Holy Spirit tell me, hey, you're doing something that you don't need to be doing, that's not going to lead you to help. We say, shh, I got this. And we expect to walk in a manner where our relationship with God is completely accessible. And that's not the way that it works. And, and so, so living in sin while believing we can maintain a relate, an intimate relationship with God. So, so here's what we know. Everyone sins. Okay? Look at the person next to you and say, hey, everyone sins. Get off my back. All right? No, don't say that. You, some of you did, and you were very aggressive with it. Um, everyone sins. When we read the Bible... Our greatest heroes of faith are exposed by the word in their weakest and most sinful moments. But the key is that after this, we see confession and we see repentance. So, so when I say this this morning, I don't want you to get upset and walk out of here saying, well, that guy thinks I should be perfect all the time. I don't. I believe you should be holy because Christ has made you holy. So we're not preaching perfection. There will be moments where we miss the mark, but the condition of our heart after a sinful act is telling whether or not this is an isolated incident or a, or a practice in our lives. And so, in fact, John Wiersbe put it this way. He says, John uh, says, making a practice of sinning is practicing lawlessness, which is sin. And it says, an unbeliever who sins is a creature sinning against his creator. A, a Christian who sins is a child sinning against his father. That the unbeliever sins against the law, a believer sins against love. 
That's what a sin is. It's a sin against love. And so this, this is why John immediately takes our eyes off of ourselves. Okay? This is a little practice we find in the Bible. That much of the time when we're drawn to look inward, we're also drawn to look to the cross. This is where John kind of leads us. He's going to highlight two major reasons why Jesus has come. And he says this in verse uh, 5. He says, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him is no sin. And in Him there is no sin. So, so Jesus, as we talk about why Jesus came, He came to take away sins. Hopefully, if you've spent much time around here, you're like, hey, I think there's a recurring theme in this church that we believe that Jesus takes away sins. That is foremost what He brings to the table. He takes away sins. More specifically, He takes away your sins. He bore your sins on the cross. He paid a price you owed but could never afford. And I love this reminder that John gives us. He says, and He did so when there was no sin in Him. Not even one. Not even one. His sinlessness is part of what qualified him to provide the needed rescue, which is why his lack of sin is a consistent theme that resounds throughout the entirety of the Bible. In fact, John himself has already taught us that that Jesus is the righteous one, and then he tells us he's the pure one, and now he explicitly uh, identifies Jesus as the sinless one. And this is what we needed. We can spend some time in Hebrews chapter 4 in particular. We're talking about needing a priest to present an offering that is worthy of of rescuing us. And as we talk about Jesus, he says, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness, one who was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. And so we're forced to respond to verse 5 with our lives. And in case we're confused about what we're to do, John says, hey, I'm going to make it really simple for you to know what you need to do. In verse 6, he says, No one who abides in him, okay? No one who, who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. Are y'all passing notes? I really feel like y'all are like two teachers passing notes in the middle of class. So, if only we had some principles here to take care of that. So, um,. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, okay, He keeps calling us this. It's it's a loving way of talking to us. Little children, let no one deceive you, okay? Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as Jesus, as He is righteous, okay? So because there is no sin in Jesus, no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. We stop. Once you come into Christ, you say, I'm done with that. I will not put sin into practice in my life. In fact, if one does continue in a pattern of the practice of sin, another logical and necessary conclusion can be drawn in the fact that everyone who sins and keeps on sinning doesn't really know Jesus. This is what the Bible says. And, but those who do have a declaration. David Platt puts it this way. This is the declaration of the saved that that because of the new birth, we have a new nature. Because Christ has taken away our sins, we have a new liberty and we have a new freedom. Sin no longer dominates us, no longer enslaves us. Sin is no longer the character and the conduct of my life. 
because I now abide in Christ and in the power of His person and in the work of the Gospel, I may fall into sin, but I will not walk in sin. I may fall into sin, but I will not walk in sin. Sin will no longer be my habit. It will not be my normal practice. I no longer love sin. I hate it. I no longer delight in sin. I despise it. This is the change of a heart that sees Christ for who He is. And in verse 8, John takes us a step further into what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf by making sure we understand where our alliance falls when we make a practice of sin. Now pay attention to what he says here. He says, whoever makes a practice of sin, of sinning, is of the devil. Is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning, and the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So this is what we learn about Jesus. He not only comes to take away our sins, but He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy it. And so the logic, it's clear that if, if a man knows God, he will obey God. And we're going to talk about why we obey, right? Our, our obedience comes not out of fear, but out of love. Not proactively, but reactively to what He has given us. And so the contrast is between Jesus who has no sin and the devil who can do nothing but sin. And so when, when John uses this word to destroy the works of the devil, uh, he doesn't mean in this time to annihilate them. Right? Though one day he will be. One day Jesus will come in and will obliterate Satan. But with this word that he's using here, it, it doesn't destru- describe annihilation what he does is he, he says that, it, that Satan has been so reduced and his weapons have been so impaired that he might be a mighty foe, but he is no match for the power of God. So, so when we talk about destroying, we're talking about rendering something inoperative or, or to rob it of its power. And so, so what is seen here is the weakness of sin in the sight of the power of Jesus. And that if we abide in Christ, then, then sin loses its stronghold on us. It does. Now, some of you are fighting temptation. Some of you are fighting with very legitimate sin. And you say, I don't know how that happens. I hear you. I even want that most of the time. But how? But how? And this is where, this is where John leads us. So not only are we loved by the Father and rescued by the Son, but... But number three, we are empowered by God's Spirit. We are empowered by God's Spirit. So, so verse number nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Okay? We can just let that wash us. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? This is a huge brush statement right here. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We're not even going to touch that verse. We're not going to touch the end of that because that's going to lead us into next week. Um, so, so we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. In fact, John refers to him here as God's seed. And he says, if we are born of God, then the seed that lives will keep us from making a practice 
of sin. And this is why we pay attention to the fruits that are coming out of our lives and, and what we're saying about the pursuit of holy living. That there are fruits that come out of that. And John tells us this is what's evident. It's what we are. We, we are either children of God or we're children of the devil by what we are putting into practice. And if we are consistently putting sin into practice, then John is mercifully, mercifully helping us understand where we stand with God. That's what he's doing. This is a great act of mercy to call us out. So remember, he, he's writing to a church just like ours with people just like us. And he says, I, I want you to know. This is James does this too, right? He says, I want you to know what true salvation is because you can be deceived by half gospels and false gospels. And so, so, so God is serious about holiness and he doesn't want you to mess around with sin. And so he sends his spirit as a helper and as a counselor who points us constantly to the cross. Constantly. He takes our eyes off of our temptation, off of our sinful practices, by showing us um, where all that sin eventually exacts its payment. And the Bible will say death. That it just kills you. You don't realize that it's killing you, but it's killing you. And this is why, let's, let's go real quickly, real quickly. Uh, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I've been spending the entire year in the book of Romans, and I'm proud to tell you I've made it almost through the end of chapter 6. Um, but, but I find these words so very fitting uh, as we talk about. What, what's happening here uh, is uh, this chapter is, is picked richly with roughly two arguments. Okay? We're not going to deal with the first one as much just to recognize it. Um, and, and what they're d- talking about is this argument that creeps up in the hearts of believers. And, and it's a silly argument when we speak out loud about it. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's the reason we uh, will use any time we choose sin over holiness. And so, so the first part of this chapter is answering this question that Paul poses from a hypothetical. Um, and, and the question is, okay, so I know that we're saved. Um, so are we to sin so that the grace of God may abound? So, so shouldn't we sin so that people can see how forgiving God is towards sinners? And, and Paul will come in and he'll say no. He'll say no. In fact, his argument is that you died to sin with Christ and you are alive in Him and so sin should not reign in your body. And now the second part uh, brings a similar question but with a different line of reasoning. Okay, and this is, this is where I would like us to go. Um, and this, so we get Romans chapter 6, verse 15. So Paul says this, What then? Okay, so he's been building on everything that he's been saying. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And he says, By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? If, you're, if you like to underline your Bible, this one will make you look really smart. You are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So the argument is, is shouldn't we just not worry about sin? Shouldn't we just, in fact, keep sinning so 
since the law has been fulfilled in Jesus. And, and Paul says, no, idiot. That's not the way this works. You're not understanding. I think that's the exclamation point. That's the hidden message behind it. Paul says, you are a slave of the one you obey. And he says the options are either you are a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. Those are your, those are your two options. And I get, I get before we get all defensive that there's not 99 other options. Can we just for a moment admit that we're not the most capable rule makers and we're definitely not the most capable rule followers? And so to put all of the law and all of the reasoning into your hands might not be the best idea. And so he says this in verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So, so as it stands, right, you have two options um, for your manner of living. You can be a slave to sin or you can be a slave to righteousness. And what he says is that one trapped you before you even realized what it was doing, and the other liberated you, keeping you from further entrapment. That's the way this plays out. Paul is saying, if you're a slave to the one whom you obey, then make sure you understand where that obedience is leading you. Where that obedience is, is leading you. And this, I think this is one of our major misconceptions about life with God, because we think about our salvation as a singular event. That, that it's, a, it's almost like you've been um, rescued by a superhero. Like, you're falling off of a building, you're just flying, you're going to your impending death, all of a sudden someone flies in, rescues you, right? Places you safely on the ground, and you say, well, golly gee, thank you, right? That's what you would say. Everybody says that all the time. Golly gee, thank you. And then the superhero says, you're welcome, and then flies away. And from that point forward, your life doesn't drastically change, right? Now, you have a good story. Every once in a while, you're like, hey, remember when so-and-so, you know, rescued me? That was cool, right? That so-and-so is a superhero that we created in this scenario. Because remember that, that one time when I fell off of a building and someone caught me? That was neat. And a lot of us think of our salvation like that. A singular, momentous event. And we say, okay, I'm free from sin, but now what do I do with the rest of my life? And what the Bible teaches us is that you become obedient to, what, to who you obey. And so your freedom is no longer like I'm free to do whatever I want. He says, no, you're a slave to Righteousness. Now, I get there's a lot of connotations that we don't like when you use that word. When we talk about being slaves to righteousness. And, and what Paul helps us understand is, is about the gospel is that it's not singular because God is intimately involved in your life. He, he's made this great investment to secure your heart and He's committing to make something beautiful out of your life. He's committed to that. He's promised that based on His Word, not at your ability. And this is where the struggle of, with the idea of being slaves to righteousness falls. Because we think of God's command to pursue righteousness as, as the cracking of a whip, and, and the Father is the taskmaster, 
who's threatening punishment if you don't obey, right? Have you ever, you ever worried about that? Like if I don't obey, all of a sudden God's going, He's going to blow me up? I mean, that's the opposite of what's going on. That God, God's not a taskmaster. He's a father who's caring for his kids, even in discipline. You realize that? That God doesn't, He's not punishing, He's disciplining, Right? He's trying to correct behavior even in those hard moments. He looks past our short-sighted desires and he looks and he says to us, you don't want to wander in that direction because it really brings you nothing but pain and I long for you to live in freedom. This is why Paul says, hey, we don't, we don't want to live as slaves to sin because in your short-sightedness, you don't realize what it's doing. It's killing you. It's breaking everything. So he says this in verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Well, I love that. He's like, I'm speaking to you because you're an idiot. For just as once, as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading uh, to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So choosing, choose righteousness because it will grow you, it will protect you, it will guide you past these very short-sighted pursuits that's a it's a mousetrap it's offering cheese but once you have it it's snapping your neck so he says in verse 20 for when you were slaves of sin this is this is helpful for when you were slaves of sin you were free in regards to righteousness but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is what? Death. Death. So this is such an honest moment from Paul. He looked at you and he looked at me and he says, you should spend some time, in fact, you should do this this week, spend time chewing on these two verses because what Paul steps in and he says is that, yeah, just, just, just think about it. Just think about it. What did you really gain from living in sin? What, what do you really gain by making a practice of sin? He says it's a fleeting pleasure because it leads to death. It does. Let's, let's start wrapping this up. Let's start wrapping this up. Verse 22. I know I said let's wrap this up, and then I'm like, verse 22. Uh, continuing on all the way through the end of the book. Um, he says this, but now. Okay? So he, he brings us this really honest moment of reflection and he says just ask yourself how's it paying off any practice of sin how does it really pay off are you are you richer in life because of it do you feel more satisfied because of it or I believe sin is it's an appetite or are you still hungry so he comes in and he says, but now that you have been set free from sin. So if you are in Christ, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And then there's this famous verse, Romans 6, chapter 23, for the wages of sin is death. 
But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so two drastic ends are presented. One is death, the other is life. And the key is in which one you obey. You're going to be a slave to one of those masters. What Paul says in verse 23, it's a powerhouse of a statement. He says, we've been set free from sin. We've been set free from sin. Our death, namely the death of Christ on the cross, has freed us from the grip that sin has on our bodies. But, but not only is sin's grip removed, we're set free. We are set free. We are free to walk in the light of the gospel. We are free to choose the things of God. We are free to walk in purpose and in love. And so, so being dead to sin typically forces us to feel that our focus should be on our temptation and then in our willingness to sin. Right? Anytime we talk about sin. In fact, that's, if you're anything like me, what you've been thinking about for the last however long we've been here are your temptations and your sinfuls, sinful moments. Right? I, yeah. yeah. Some of you are like, oh gosh, yeah. Just pray so I can stop doing that. And I think there's this model in the Bible, I said this a second ago, that the end result of me talking to you about your sinfulness and you, you, the warnings of putting sin into practice has nothing to do with, with beating you up and breaking you down. It doesn't. It has everything to do with taking your eyes off of yourself, putting it onto Christ. He's our liberator. He's our Savior. He's our great rescuer. And I wonder if, if what Paul, is, Paul and John have in mind is, is that, hey, I want you to see that God loves you and He's rescued you and He's empowering you. And all of that's motivated not to guilt you, but to wake you up. To wake you up out of your slumber. To see things the way that they actually are. To walk in the gospel as the free, as a free son and heir of the king. Of the, to be a daughter of the king. Because we could. We could spend the rest of our time just wallowing in our sinfulness. Right? You might be able to find someone that has a worse sin than you. And you feel good about yourself just for a little bit. But that's not our aim. It's a merciful act for John to step into our lives and say, hey, you can't put sin into practice. You can't do it. You can't. So this is where I want to leave us this morning. In that. <laughs> in that. That A, you shouldn't choose sin as a practice. And, but B, you don't still have to live there. You don't. Now here's the thing. I'm not talking about pulling bootstraps up, saying I'm done with that. I'm talking about looking at Jesus, leaning into Him, and choosing to see things exposed seeing how empty those pursuits are. Because here's the thing, we can, we can fool each other, 
we don't fool God. And His desire for you to live holy comes out of His love for you. It's huge. Our desire this week is to love God. Bye. Please stand with me. As we wrap up, let me make a couple things available. If you need prayer this morning, maybe, maybe you are struggling. Maybe you are dealing with sin. And you say, I don't know if I, if I want to expose that with people. What we long to do is walk with you, fight beside you. So what we pray is that you would be able to have the boldness to ask for prayer. Maybe you're trapped in sin because you've never asked Jesus into your heart. Or maybe you have and you're like, I have not been living in a way that models that. We want to, we want to celebrate with you. We want to battle alongside you. We'll have some people over here, not in the corner, because nobody puts a baby in a corner, by that door. I love you guys. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you. We thank you for hard words and we thank you for merciful words and we thank you for life-giving words and we thank you for the Bible's willingness to step into these moments of our lives. So Father, I pray through the power of Your Holy Spirit and in the name of Your Son Jesus, You would break us free. That we would walk in the freedom. We would pursue righteousness. We would care about holy living. Not so that we can brag about how holy we are, but so that we can make much of You. We thank You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.